Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Ryan Brown, author of Pittsburgh and the Great Steel Strike of 1919. Ryan Brown, author of Pittsburgh and the Great Steel Strike of 1919. Why'd you write the book? Well, I, I, one, the anniversary was here. I mean, it was a perfect opportunity to, to relate a historical topic that no one really thinks much about in this area and kind of give it a hook that people would say, wow, this was 100 years ago. But also, I think there's such a wave of, of organizing activity, of kind of what at that time would have been considered political radicalism, of, um, of strikes. I mean, we're having more strikes in the last couple of years than there have been in decades before. And so I, I thought it was a perfect opportunity to talk about a local event that not many people know about, but which has so many parallels or so many lessons now 100 years later. So what did it mean to be a union 1919? Well, it was a lot different than it is now. Uh, I mean, in the 1930s during the New Deal, the way that unions organized changed completely. Uh, they suddenly, there's like a legalistic framework for them. And in a lot of ways, it helped them organize. It made them stronger. Um, it made them more numerous. Um, but it, it allowed them to have a legal structure they could operate for bargaining, for support from the National Labor Relations Board. In 1919, it was nothing like that. It was sort of a free-for-all in many respects. Uh, unions operated secretly until they didn't anymore in a, in a mill or factory. Um, they were made up basically of just whatever members were able to become active at that moment. Uh, it was a constant battle to keep membership up, to keep them, if they were able to be recognized, to keep that recognition. It was, uh, it was much more of a, a struggle than you would see in a lot of workplaces now where the union is just an accepted fact of life. Well, what was their legal standing? I mean, were they legally allowed to collectively bargain? They were, they, they, and they did collectively bargain. In fact, in the, uh, the 1919 steel strike, one of their big demands of the union that struck was the right to be recognized as a, as a bargaining representative. In many industries, especially like this, that were hostile to organizing, it was difficult to get that base level of recognition. And there wouldn't be a federally administered election the way there would be now. It was if they had enough power, they had a union. There's, there's a phrase that some unions still use, which is uh, anytime there's two or more workers in a job site together, there's a union. If they're, if they're talking about their conditions and trying to fix them. And that was a lot of the mentality at that time. As, as long as there was a core or a nucleus of people trying to expand, they were going to try to do it. Whether they had a, a negotiated contract or not, their power just came from numbers. Would would the companies sometimes say, oh, you're a union member, you're fired, or you're a union oh, leader, you're fired? Absolutely. In fact, uh, William Z. Foster, who was the head organizer of the 1919 campaign that led to the strike, he was kind of the main figure on the union's behalf, he, he described some towns as a bleeding wound of workers where uh, essentially if the bosses caught wind, everyone who was involved would be uh, done away with. They'd be fired. They could be blacklisted. There was violence committed in many cases, I talk about in the book. Uh, it, was, it was not, uh, and, that, and that's the sort of thing that still happens today to an extent, but it was certainly much more open and explicit at that time, it, often with the connivance of local authorities or of the police or of politicians. If you were organizing, uh, you were constantly putting yourself at danger. And, and that's 
as you can see in this strike. I mean, many people died, many were blacklisted. It was not a, not a peaceful time for organizers. What was the state of the steel industry then? Who were the big companies? And there was, was a big company, largely. There was U.S. Steel, uh, which was the, they often called the Steel Trust, dismissively, the union organizers. Uh, it was by far the biggest power. It set wages, it set conditions. It had been formed at the turn of the century from a collection of smaller ones, the core of which was Carnegie's steel empire. And uh, when, when they organized into one major conglomerate, the nascent unions there tried to strike uh, and failed, kind of to flex their muscle to say, look, this new trust can't stop us. They failed in doing so for a number of reasons. And so you had this one massive corporation that set the conditions that was generally hostile to unions. And then there were a collection of smaller companies scattered throughout the country. Uh, you had uh, Bethlehem Steel or uh, Midland. Some of these companies that uh, were the, the rem remnants of the 1800 system of owner-operators, sort of. They, they weren't so much part of the trust. But uh, it was hundreds of thousands of workers across the entire country, but Pittsburgh was the heart of it. They, they described the principality of steel, some of the writers of the time, as I, as I use that phrase in the book. Uh, basically across the Ohio and the Allegheny and the Monongahela Valleys. And that was the heart of the industry, and that was what the organizers knew they had to tackle if they were going to get this industry unionized. Why Pittsburgh? Well, they didn't initially start in Pittsburgh, interestingly. Uh, William Foster and his collection of organizers from the top had started in Chicago. The, the and union people. Yes, the mm -hmm. union organizers. They, they had uh, started in Chicago after Foster organized packing house workers. And it was, it was such a successful drive that some of these figures who were dedicated to organizing uh, AFL, American Federation of Labor Unions, decided that the steel industry would be the next great target. It was a massive industry. It was almost totally unorganized. To the extent that there was a union, it was never really recognized. Uh, and it was a strategically important industry. You know, it was tied to coal. It was tied to the railroads. All these industries fed into it. If they could organize that, it would have been a massive victory for the labor movement, unprecedented. And in order to get steel, you had to have Pittsburgh. So after starting their campaign in Chicago, uh, the, the top organizers did move to downtown Pittsburgh. And they more or less plugged into existing organizing that was happening. It wasn't like they, they created the concept out here. There were, for decades, workers around Pittsburgh. And we all know about the Homestead strike. We know about those events. Uh, workers in this area had been fighting for a long time. What these national organizers did was bring it to an unprecedented scale, taking it across the country, making it an industrial campaign, as they would have called it, uh, rather than a series of craft unions fighting it out in individual mills. I have to ask you about one, uh, one early union that you mentioned, just because of the name, the Sons of Vulcan. Yeah, yeah, the Sons of Vulcan were iron workers, and they were one of the first organized groups in this industry in America. And uh, it represented mostly puddlers who, who worked in iron, and these were people who uh, stirred pots of iron, molten iron, and they used these big metal bars and would stir them in, and the bars would melt as they stirred. And these were people who had to, they had incredible skill, you know, training. It was a, it was a craft in every way. And you'd be brought up in it, you'd spend years learning it. Uh, and so they had a lot of power. And it's interesting when you look at the early strikes by workers like these, the way that it's described, even in the 1850s or 60s, uh, they they see themselves as fighting against exploitation, against the, in some newspaper clippings they say it's like the battle against the capitalistic system. It's really interesting that early that they're talking in these radical ways, but for the most part unions 
were craft-based. It was as long as we have monopoly on our skill and our labor, uh, we can get some pretty good pay out of it. And that was that was fine for the time, but you start to see after the the era of the Sons of Vulcan, you start to see more of an interest in this industrial organizing. Uh, as the decades go by, it becomes clear that that skilled labor wasn't going to be the wave of the future for steel anymore. It was going to be armies of workers doing running machines. Uh, and so the model they used had to change. If you were to walk around Pittsburgh in 1919, what would you have seen? You would have seen a uh, certainly a, a much dirtier and more industrial city. I was just reading recently about the, a study that shows Pittsburgh is at basically the low ebb at any point of even post-industrial economy. And so it would be a completely different world 100 years ago. You would have uh, neighborhoods and towns that were inhabited entirely by immigrant communities working in these mills. If you, if you read about some of these uh, towns outside Pittsburgh, especially like Braddock, they describe the, these shacks or small homes that the workers would live in, often communally with their families from Eastern European countries. Um, they were covered in soot and smoke from the mills and just from daily life. Uh, the, the women would uh, desperately try to keep their these curtains white. <laughs> there was a writer who discussed that. I think I mentioned that you know it was kind of a sign of resistance against this industrial surrounding they lived in. That you know we can still have a nice home life, but but daily life for people would have been uh, very difficult, especially in these towns. I mean, you would have men who were working 12-hour days, seven days a week. Sometimes they'd be doing 24-hour shifts. Uh, the their home lives often revolved around ethnic or cultural communities. Uh, you'd see a lot more neighborhoods that were broken down by that. And you can see that even during the strike, the way that it was sort of divided along ethnic or racial cultural lines. Um, but a lot of these neighborhoods had thriving communities, both of unions and, and of cultural unity, but also of politics. I mean, you see much more in this, these terms of radical politics, radical organizing at this time um, that was, that was in every neighborhood, deep-rooted in it. If you, uh, if you look at some of these immigrant communities, during World War I, there was an event, uh, a, it was an anti-war gathering, uh, protesting the war in Europe, which I, I don't believe the United States was in at this point. And they talk about how six different uh, socialist choirs of every different ethnic group on the North Side was going to be singing at this. It's amazing to think the way that this organizing and politics were so deeply rooted in these ethnic communities. Well, I want to ask you about that word socialist, because you say in 1912, a weekly socialist bulletin appeared in the Pittsburgh press, mm -hmm. like mainstream newspaper. Yeah, absolutely. And it dutifully reported the minutia of meetings and social functions over several columns. So uh, mm -hmm. calling someone a socialist wasn't necessarily like no, condemning very, them? No, not yet. And, and it's, it's weird the way that it, uh, it went up and down. So this time, socialism was such, so normalized in the political life. I mean... Candidates like Eugene Debs got tens of thousands of votes in places like Pittsburgh, large percentages of the votes. Uh, towns would elect socialist mayors, like Turtle Creek and Pitcairn had socialist mayors around this time, socialist council members. Uh, it was a, a broad movement concentrated around the Socialist Party, but it was a, a perfectly normal thing politically. It, during the war, World War I, it started to be chipped away at, uh, that because the, most of the socialists opposed the war, uh, and many were immigrants or came from immigrant backgrounds, they were immediately seen as untrustworthy. Uh, they were harassed by local police, by the federal government, by patriotic organizations that thought that they, you know, they, they were undermining the war effort. So by the end of the war, they had definitely taken a hit. But they weren't gone. The movement just sort of changed into 
there was an underground component that formed. Uh, that would be the, the start of the communist movement. And by the end of World War I, a lot of the people who'd been active were driven underground, were in jail. But the movement didn't go away. Uh, there was more, certainly more of a, uh, I guess you could say, a, a <laughs> difficulty openly proclaiming yourself a socialist for a few years after that. Well, in the years that, that before that, before World War I, when it was okay to be a socialist, yeah. what did they believe in? Well, they, there were a few different ranges of belief. It wasn't a, it wasn't a unitary movement or organization, certainly, nor is it today. Uh, you had people who were sometimes dismissed as slocialists, which is people who wanted uh, reforms. They were the kind of guys who would run for local office. They'd, uh, there's one candidate who became a council member out in Altoona, which is hard to imagine today, uh, socialists in Altoona. But they, he pushed for uh, garbage collection and sewer upgrades. You know, it was, it was, they called it sewer socialism in some cities. It was basically just progressive politics on a local level. Uh, and they just wanted day-to-day -day improvements in the lives of working people. But there were also much more radical wings of this movement. You had uh, the industrial workers of the world who became very influential around this time uh, and then quickly fell off in influence for a while. And they were much more radical. They, they didn't really believe in elections. They believed in sabotaging workplaces and organizing underground. And you, you went so far as to have groups, especially in some immigrant communities, like anarchists who, who might have known and associated with these socialists but might not have been approving of their methods. They, they didn't care for electoralism or anything like that. So it was, it was a, a tableau of all these different ideologies. Uh, but for the most part, the ones you'd run into day to day would be people like Eugene Debs, you know, the, the candidate who was definitely a firebrand, but who believed in running in elections, who had a lot of national followers, uh, got a lot of good press. Uh, it was certainly not a, a, an insult to be a socialist at that time. Did that change when the Russian Revolution happened in 1917? Uh, yeah, that was a major influence, and that had a lot of repercussions here in Pittsburgh. Uh, when the Russian Revolution happened, it divided the socialist movement. It divided a lot of radicals and activists and even just progressives, as well as the unions. Uh, suddenly, ideas that had been, had been seen as reasonably mainstream were now radical. They were dangerous. They were the signs of Bolshevism, which is the word you keep seeing again and again in the local press, everybody was a Bolshevik if they if they did anything too radical. Uh, there was this fear of spies or saboteurs everywhere, and that came with the Russian Revolution because all of a sudden these the socialists weren't all interested in running for office. Some of them thought that there should be nationwide strikes, there should be uprisings. You know, it was a very different situation, but it was it was certainly used by the powers that be, I think, to to tar everyone in the same brush. So getting back to the steel mills then, if you would walk through a steel mill in 1919, what would it have been like? Well, it would have uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, immigrant workers divided by their ethnicity for one thing. If you look at the way that the workers were split up, different jobs were associated with different backgrounds, different skill levels. So the people who had once been immigrant workers themselves, like Irish and German workers, had by this point moved up into more managerial or white-collar jobs in many cases. So there was a hierarchy? Yeah, there was certainly groups? a hierarchy, and that continued for decades after. I mean, it's a thing you still see after World War II, anyway. But uh, a lot of the Eastern European immigrants would have been kind of at the bottom of that heap, and they, they were doing what was considered unskilled work. I mean, manipulating machines. Uh, it was a much more technologically advanced system than the Sons of Vulcan would have had. Uh, you would see you know, massive, you've, you've, we can still see them today in many cases, these massive facilities which would have thousands of workers in them and they would be 
working these long shifts. In fact, sometimes they would sleep on site for a couple of hours just uh, in, in periods between shifts. They were running for 24 hours a day. Uh, and, and the rate of injuries and deaths in some of these facilities was certainly uh, shocking to today's standards. I mean, I, I mentioned, I believe, uh, in McKee's Rocks, there was a finishing plant that made steel cars. And a few years before this strike, uh, they estimated that one worker might die every day. And that just meant that uh, they would have a line outside essentially to replace them with, and uh, they, they would never stop production over it. So it was, it was certainly a brutal condition to be working and living in. Was it thought to be a desirable job if you were a steel worker? There, there, was, there were desirable aspects of it. I mean, you made enough money to support a family, um, which, which couldn't be said of everybody, but the conditions themselves, especially the hours, were such that more pay wasn't always even considered a benefit. Uh, they wanted an eight-hour day, many of these workers, and that's what part of the strike was over. But it wasn't just an eight-hour day, because at one point the companies actually relented on that front and said, we'll give you a basic eight-hour day. That is, after eight hours you'll get overtime, and that was considered a victory. But for a lot of these workers that wasn't enough, because sure, you get overtime, but you have no means to use it. You're at work for every waking hour. Uh, so they could make money, and especially once World War I was underway, uh, they were much sought after. You know, their work was in demand. The government was starting to get involved in making sure their conditions were better. They they were getting reasonable pay, uh, but it wasn't enough to break those conditions they worked under, and that was something the companies didn't want to relent on. So you, they could make a living wage as a yeah, worker? a living wage, although certainly not uh, not what they would have been after. You could survive on the money they were making, uh, and there were there were worse jobs in the world than than being a steelworker. It was it was. In many ways, a fight for dignity, a fight for representation, uh, and a fight for the freedom to have some time with your family, which most other workers got. It was considered abnormal that the steel workers uh, worked that much. You say in your book that uh, a lot of the steel mills had introduced automation, that so they required fewer skilled workers. Yeah, early early stages of automation. It was it was. Uh, I mean, we're not talking the kind of things you see today with robotics, obviously, but it was. It was no longer the kind of skilled work. There was a lot more technological advancement. Like they could measure uh, the condition of the steel to be precise using scientific measurements so that if you needed railroad, uh, you could do it for that. If you needed building materials, you could do it for that. It, it, whereas before, these workers like the puddlers would have to eyeball a lot of this. You have people who had built lifetimes of experience personally understanding how the steel works. They had a, almost a relationship with it. Now it was all done scientifically and that required fewer skilled workers. Was it generally pretty steady work or was it, did it fluctuate? I mean, were there layoffs if the economy was slow? There, there were fluctuations, certainly, and World War I was one of the big uh, causes of this, is that during the First World War, and especially once the United States got involved, you saw uh, just a, a surge in demand for steel, both from the European powers and from the United States. And all of a sudden, these workers, as I mentioned, were, were in desperate need. I mean, they were always sought after, their labor was important, but now the government knew that they had to have these workers on hand. And that meant that uh, they, they would get better conditions, they would get support from the Wilson administration, that's President Woodrow Wilson, uh, and you would see them getting a, a degree of, if not uh, representation in their mills, and certainly at least of attention. And that meant that the federal government wanted to avert strikes, the federal government wanted to uh, ensure they weren't walking off the job or, or seeking work elsewhere. So you certainly saw uh, attention paid to their conditions in a way that wasn't being paid before. But after the war, they quickly recognized that that period was going to end. They were no longer going to be so desired by the government. They wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't get the same protections they had during the war. 
And that, the, the later phases of the war are when the organizers launched that campaign, specifically because they knew they had to protect these gains they had briefly made. Did the mills hire African Americans? They did, uh, not in great numbers, and it, it varied by location. Uh, they were they were not ever able to rise into the higher ranks. Uh, it was discussed that uh, African American workers were basically accepted they would be at the lowest rung forever. Um, that there was no desire to to learn skills to advance yourself because they knew they wouldn't be hired. And that, that extended in some ways into the unions. Uh, in many cases, the unions did not pay great attention to them. They weren't kept out of the union explicitly. The, uh, William Z. Foster, the, the head organizer of the campaign, talks about that. There were active uh, black workers at the mills, but they were few in number, and they were not treated with the same kind of respect as their white counterparts. And that became a problem during the strike because the, the companies were able to utilize that, that racial animus or that distrust uh, toward breaking the strike. Tell me about Elbert Gary. Elbert Gary was the president of U.S. Steel, or the, the chairman, uh, and he was from an interesting crop of steel executives because you, you have Carnegie, who's so famous, uh, and Frick and people of that era who were just violently, personally hostile in many cases to organizing. I mean, Frick is famous for that, the Homestead strike. Uh, these people had personal problems because they'd come up in the industry as operators themselves and they felt that a union would interfere with the day-to-day -day activities. So that, that kind of personal anger seeped into their interactions with unions. Albert Gary was from a generation that was more corporate in nature. They, they saw uh, that as long as the company was doing well, they weren't going to worry on a personal level about whether people were organizing. Uh, and so for a while actually the unions, like the amalgamated uh, iron and steel workers, saw some successes because the the unions uh, and the bosses were able to at least live side by side, not necessarily peacefully. But when it became clear that this campaign was going to be industry-wide, that it was going to make these widespread demands, that they were demanding total recognition of the union in pretty much every steel mill, uh, executives like Gary turned very quickly uh, into to be hostile. Uh, Elbert Gary was uh, he was deeply tied to the industry. I mean, the city of Gary, Indiana is his uh, namesake. And Gary, Indiana, in fact, was a, a site of some of the worst violence during the strike. Uh, so these executives like Gary uh, had a, a kind of innate hostility by the time the strike took place. They did not want to recognize this. And they, they saw that it was a, a testament to the strength of the union movement as a whole and that by breaking this, they could, they could break it across the industry and across many other industries. I mean, it was, you start to see manufacturers associations and business associations working together in a way they might not have before just to break strikes like this. Interesting character in your book is Alexander Berman. Oh, yes, uh, Berkman. Berkman. Um, yeah, he, uh, he was the, the would-be assassin of Henry Clay Frick, who, while not from Pittsburgh, he's kind of tied into Pittsburgh history so closely. Uh, and he, what's interesting is his life follows so many of these events from the Homestead Strike all the way to the Red Scare, the first Red Scare. So I, I used him as a, almost a character because he, he was present for so much of this. He uh, had, was an anarchist, he was a, an immigrant from Russia, very politically involved and aware. He, he knew many of the famous activists of the time, like Emma Goldman. Uh, and he, during the Homestead Strike in 1892, had become so incensed at the conditions of the workers, at the abuses being committed against them, that he dedicated himself to killing Frick as kind of an act of, of protest, of public uh, war against the ruling class. So he uh, traveled to Pittsburgh on a train, 
he went into Berkman's or into uh, Frick's office, and he uh, tried to kill him, and he failed. He was apprehended. Frick survived, and uh, Berkman was jailed for I believe 14 years. So he spent a lot of time in prison, where he, he kept up his politics. He remained active, and upon his release, uh, he went right back into the anarchist movement, and he ended up being caught up in the Red Scare that came simultaneous with his steel strike. He, as well as a lot of uh, comrades in Pittsburgh, was rounded up uh, and deported back to Russia as an alien radical in this wave of deportations and arrests that struck especially people from Eastern Europe. As union uh, organizing grew, how did the federal government come down on it and the state government and, and, and the, say, the mayor of Pittsburgh? Well, the, the federal government took uh, an interesting view of it because Woodrow Wilson was not innately hostile to unions. I mean, they, they were a base of support in many cases, and he wanted to work with them, but he was not by any means a radical. He wasn't going to go out of his way to support them. But uh, the federal government had, as I mentioned, helped unions improve their conditions during the war. They formed these wartime labor boards that uh, aimed to protect workers' conditions as best they could to kind of ensure peace. They would bring to the table uh, executives and unions for the first time in many cases uh, to, to ensure there was labor peace. Uh, but after that, Wilson recognized that he didn't quite need the workers, I think, in the way that he did before. And so the federal government, while not immediately hostile to organizers, took a different tack. Uh, they, his, his main interest was in ensuring that the strike was at least delayed as much as possible or, or minimized. And the federal government had exchanges with some of the organizers in which they said, essentially, like, please don't strike. We need you not to strike. And were, many of the workers were getting fed up with this. They were saying our conditions are getting worse, we're being fired in mass. Uh, so you started to see a little bit more hostility from the government. And that became most obvious in Gary, Indiana, where uh, U.S. Army troops came in and broke the strike by force. Uh, that didn't happen in Pittsburgh, but in some of these steel towns, uh, that, was what you, that was what you saw was a total crackdown. At the state level and at the local level, there was a general hostility as well, especially in towns that were more or less under the sway of the steel companies or the steel trust, as they would have been called. Uh, you had a lot of local government officials who uh, who had either worked directly for the companies or who had close ties, and they they used the police more or less as strike breakers. Uh, Pennsylvania had a, a long history of law enforcement being used for that purpose. There were the coal and iron police who famously had been used in a lot of the strikes out in eastern Pennsylvania, coal strikes. Uh, they were kind of on the downswing at this time. They weren't, they weren't as heavily used in, in 1919. But what they did have was the state police and state constables, uh, many of whom the, the workers dismissed as Cossacks. You know, they called them, they'd come from Eastern Europe, from the Russian Empire. They saw these uh, cavalry used by the Tsar to put down strikes and protests. And they, they referred to them the same way in America because they saw horse-mounted, armed police uh, breaking up their strikes. So there's a lot of hostility, and especially in these small towns where there was kind of a personal level to it. In, in Homestead, for example, the mayor had been a striker in 1892 in the Homestead strike. But as the organizers put it, he had recovered from his unionism and now was, uh, was on the side of the companies and helped ensure they couldn't have meetings, that... Uh, that when they had gatherings that there would be someone on hand to ensure they didn't break out into, into a protest. They would often have police on hand to break them up after a certain period of time or they would say you can't speak foreign languages. Uh, 
So the, the government officials certainly were by and large not friendly to, uh, <laughs> to the strike or to the organizers. And then the city of Pittsburgh was, was like one political party, the, the workers' party, the other political party, the management no, party? No, there, there wasn't, this, it wasn't the kind of divide you would have seen even a couple decades later. And, uh, and I'm, I'm not expert on the, the party politics in Pittsburgh at this time, but uh, you, you wouldn't have seen a, a workers' party per se. Um, there was such a, a tapestry of these different workers' movements and parties and organizations. Certainly a lot of Democrats, there, you would have seen them with ties to labor. Uh, but you also would have seen so a lot of people being more loyal to these, uh, what might be considered radical or, or um, immigrant-focused parties like the Socialists. Um, and so the, the city of Pittsburgh itself was seen so much as the heart of the steel industry that it was almost... Uh, it was almost unbreakable. Even the organizers themselves, I believe they described it as, as capitalism with a chip on its shoulder, that it was totally under the sway of the companies. And so even though the campaign operated from downtown Pittsburgh, uh, a lot of the campaign itself focused on the, the towns surrounding the city, your towns like Braddock and, um, and you know, Clareton, those kind of areas. That was where a lot of the action of the strike itself was. How did Pittsburgh come to be the heart of the steel industry? Well, a good geographic location. Uh, certainly it was, you know, head of the Ohio River, uh, can be easily transported out of the country, uh, good access to the East Coast. And there was this network of sub-industries, more or less, that fed the steel industry that surrounded Pittsburgh. So you had, for example, the railroads. Uh, all over uh, Pennsylvania and West Virginia, the railroads took coal into the city. There were barges that would take it in. You had iron that came from the upper Midwest. Uh, the Mesabi Range in Minnesota was a big center of that. And you would see barges that went across the Great Lakes to, toward you know, the area of Erie. So it was this, this network of related industries that fed into steel, and Pittsburgh was kind of perfectly situated at the heart of it. Uh, but there were a lot of other areas of the country that, that had steel industries, the Chicago area, even out in Colorado and like New Mexico. In that area, there were kind of small-scale industries that saw a lot of action during the strike as well. When you were putting this book together, did you do a lot of reading of newspapers of the era? Yeah, I used, I used a lot of newspaper archives, and it's fascinating to, to read the papers of the time. Just the way that they, the way that they talked about the strike itself. Um, I mean, there, there was not always a lot of pretense of neutrality, um, especially as the strike went on and the Red Scare got into its full swing. I mean, you started to see a lot of articles just openly about, uh, you know, Reds and Bolsheviks. They, were, they would say that, you know, scarcely a red will speak his name in some of these uh, areas of, of the hills around Pittsburgh and West Virginia. So they talked in this very uh, jingoistic kind of way, saying, you know, these people are foreigners, they're, they're kind of going to bring tyranny to the country. Uh, it was interesting to read through, uh, but in addition to newspapers, I used a lot of the, um, the archives, like from the University of Pittsburgh has some archives uh, that relate to the strike and to the organizing efforts. And uh, there were a lot of books at the time, contemporary books that are, are more or less out of print, uh, but which have a lot of this kind of day-to-day -day action of what was happening, observations of the regular people, which is hard to get sometimes. When, um, the, uh, when the strike started approaching, how did the union go from being this secretive thing that you might lose your job, if you're a member of, to being strong enough to say, okay, we're hitting the bricks? Well, it, it depends on the town and the, the conditions. So. Uh, the, it was known that there was a union probably in most plants or towns, uh, but in many cases its membership might be kept to some degree secret or its membership certainly would rotate. Uh, but you would see 
in some of these towns, once the campaign opened up fully, just immediate clashes and struggles. Uh, an example is in Johnstown, where the Union became particularly powerful during this campaign. Uh, and the strikers there, the workers there, were talking about wanting to go on strike ahead of schedule. You know, they were the organizers, and this is, this is a problem even today in some union campaigns, is the workers get ahead of themselves and the organizers are trying to hold them back a little bit. Uh, and so you, you read how in towns like Johnstown, the uh, company was dismissing workers, uh, they were being laid off if they were found to be associated with the union, and those who remained were saying, now is our time to strike, like we can't keep losing membership like this. We're getting powerful, but if we don't do it now, they might crack down on us even harder. And you can see that kind of battle between someone like Foster, the organizer of the campaign, and the rank and file workers who were saying, we need to do this now. Uh, but in some areas, they didn't have quite as much penetration as in a town like Johnstown. And there, they, they might uh, be, be broken by the authorities. Uh, there were some towns where the campaign, the organizers, basically had to leave them be for a few months because they just couldn't break through the wall of police power, of company power. Uh, so it, it varied by town, but you started to see a lot of these, these workers in cases where they had made a lot of inroads uh, fighting to get the strike underway. What was the union? The union itself, well, so, so the campaign was interesting because the primary union you see when they talk about the strike was the Amalgamated Association of, of Iron and Steel Workers, uh, a union that has not existed now for decades. Uh, but it was, it was a national union that was formed in the 19th century to cover pretty much everyone in the iron and steel industries. But there were about two dozen unions total involved in this campaign, which was unprecedented. I mean, usually individual unions would have, be very jealous of their membership. They would say, look, we're not gonna let another group come and take away any of our thunder in this campaign. Uh, but these organizers saw an industrial opportunity, industrial organizing as it is called, uh, where instead of doing these individual crafts, they would make the first steps toward an entire industry. And the way they did that was they had to bring all these individual unions on board. And that meant getting about two dozen AFL unions uh, to sign on to this big campaign that would be kind of spearheaded by the amalgamated, as it was called. But what they did was they would have um, these, these, what they call monster mass meetings, these big gatherings in halls or, or ethnic clubs where everyone in the town, every worker would get together. And then they would sign cards, and then based on their job or their specialization, they might be slotted into an individual union later. But it was kind of one of the first steps of this industrial organizing that you'd see a lot more of in the 1930s. Was there a boss? A single boss? Yeah. Uh, in, it, 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 there was certainly uh, a perception of a boss. I mean, people talked about Gary as the individual. No, I mean the union boss. Oh, a union boss. Uh, no, there, was, there, was, uh, there were actually a lot of internal kind of divisions and, um, and different power structures within this union campaign. So, I mean, you had Samuel Gompers, who was the head of the AFL, who was always associated more with a degree of moderation. He was, he was an old craft kind of guy, and uh, as many union leaders were at the time. But you had someone like Foster, who, while not the head of the union itself, was the head of the campaign. And he was certainly the face of the campaign, if not necessarily a boss in the sense people would recognize it, but uh, the public face, to the point that in Congress, uh, his name was bandied about a lot as a threat, you know. Uh, his name was in the newspapers all the time. He was more or less the public leader of the, of the effort, which caused some problems because Foster was a radical himself or had radical background. You say in your book that later on he ran for president of the United States on the Communist uh, yeah, Party. Yeah, several ticket. times. Yeah, he was a, became a very influential figure in the Communist Party for decades. 
But this was a period that was interesting. It was almost a lull in his public-facing radicalism where he had been a, what was called a syndicalist earlier involved in the industrial workers of the world. And these were people who believed that you know, the unions should be a means for workers to just directly seize control of all the factories, all the mills, uh, just directly seize power across the country. Uh, and he wrote a book about it called Syndicalism, uh, which was used against him during this campaign. But during the period of this campaign, Foster was operating within within the, the traditional union structures, more or less. He was working in the AFL, which was not radical. Uh, he was working with a lot of more moderate or traditional union leaders. Uh, he still had his, I think, radical views, which played into how he organized this. But yeah, after, after the strike, he was kind of driven out, and he went on to form a much more militant uh, organizing campaign and became heavily involved in, in communism. So when the, the union representatives sat down with the representatives of the company, what was it the unions wanted? And there were a series of demands, uh, which included an eight-hour day, a true eight-hour day, um, an end to the seven-day-a-week shifts and the 24-hour shifts that they were forced to do sometimes, improvements in pay, recognition of the union as a bargaining unit, uh, which was a, a shocking claim for the, the steel executives. They didn't want to have to recognize this union in the whole industry. But it's interesting because many other countries and even other industries had already long established this was a norm. You know, an industry would have a union and they would recognize them and bargain with them. Uh, but in steel, that was considered an extreme stance. Were uh, coal miners unionized at this They point? were. They were uh, heavily unionized. Uh, the United Mine Workers, who were still around, um, had hundreds of thousands of, of active members. And in fact, they played into this strike. Uh, partway into the steel strike, the coal miners also launched their own strike. Uh, with a lot of their own demands, and they were very powerful. They were, um, their leader was John L. Lewis, who became very influential in the founding of uh, the CIO here in Pittsburgh a couple decades later, which was a huge industrial effort as well. Uh, but John L. Lewis and the, the miners were, uh, were really influential in the labor movement. And the, the miners had sort of their own radical platform, at least some of the rank and file ones, that they, they were pushing during the strike. Uh, and that, that, I think, helped accelerate some of the Red Scare talk you saw that affected the steel workers. Well, the, the Red Scare that you talk about, was there legitimate communist involvement with the unions? There was. There were certainly proto-communist, I guess you could say. I mean, the, the communist parties, there were two of them, themselves formed during this campaign. They were very new and uh, were just getting off the ground. Uh, but there was certainly radical involvement. And I think that's an interesting thing that that I like to stress in the book and just when I'm talking to people is there's a tendency I think when people talk about the Red Scare, either this one or the, the more famous one in the 1940s and 50s, to say like people were smeared as radicals, you know, they were falsely attacked you know, and by people like McCarthy later on. Uh, and while that's true in many, many cases, I think it's important also to recognize that many of the people who were doing good work and important work in these campaigns were actually politically radical. And, you don't need to necessarily shy away from that fact. It, it influenced a lot of the way they organized. And so you had Foster, for example, who obviously was had, had at least a radical background. Um, you had a lot of rank-and-file organizers who would read socialist newspapers who might be active in that group, uh, people who were affiliated with the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, um, who had done a lot of organizing in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was kind of one of their first big victories. Uh, so you certainly did see an influence. It was just, I, I think the danger was exaggerated or used as a weapon against the strikers. Uh, the idea that just because a few people are gathering in a club or, or talking about politics or organizing even a radical union, 
it was taken to mean there were plots and schemes, you know, that they were going to overthrow the government or kill people. Uh, the example, I think my, I'd say my favorite example, is in Manessa, I mentioned in the book, where there was a labor march during this campaign. Uh, miners and workers were going to just go on a march and kind of a rally. Uh, and federal agents descended on this area and arrested a bunch of people. And they claimed that Russians were going to take control of this march uh, with machine guns and pistols and seize control of Manesson and raise a black flag and declare their loyalty to Lenin and Trotsky, which seems a little far-fetched uh, <laughs> given the area, um, but it was the kind of fear that was circulating among just about immigrants and about radical workers. Was there any connection between the communists organizing here in Pittsburgh and, and the communists in Europe? Well, there, there was. There were certainly ideological connections. Uh, people who, uh, the fault lines within unions and within the political movements uh, broke during 1919, where people who had been more moderate, those kind of people who ran for elected offices, socialists, or who just believed in organizing unions, uh, started to split from the people who looked to Russia as a model, you know, an inspiration for, for workers in America. Uh, and that was the first step of the split between socialists and communists that you would start to see a lot more in the years to come. Uh, but there were certainly ideological connections. I mean, a lot of people involved in these unions or in these strikes uh, did see Russia to some degree or another as an example to be looked up to. Uh, they, the early communist parties uh, did, you know, people, there, were, there were claims they got funds from Russia. Um, so there were ties. They were all working together in what was called the Common Turn, uh, the Communist International. Uh, so they, they certainly worked alongside the similar groups from other countries, but I think the idea of like the spy conspiracy was certainly exaggerated. They were mostly just activists and, and uh, union organizers. I want to ask about one thing. You write about this uh, the summer of 1919. You said the miners had their own strike after the steel mm -hmm. workers. And you said the, the most militant coal miners across the country saw their chance to act, and they had a meeting, and they endorsed a 60% pay cut, a couple of other things. But one of the things they endorsed was the Plum Plan under yeah, which the federal government really would nationalize the railroads and turn over half their profits to the workers. Yeah, so during World War I and after it, immediately after it, the railroads actually were nationalized and um, just as a kind of a wartime necessity. Uh, and that was by about 1920, I believe, was, was reversed. But the coal miners argued, yeah, they, they had said there was this an economist or a thinker named Plum who came up with this idea that the railroads should be held in common publicly and by the workers. Uh, and that was seen as a very radical idea and uh, that was part of their premise. They also were accused of wanting to nationalize the coal mines. I was just recently reading a, a headline from 1919 uh, where it was saying socialistic ideas among the coal miners. You know, and they had, the uh, the claim was that they were going to try to nationalize every industry. They were, you know, this was like the front of, of increasing nationalizations. Uh, and it did sound very radical to people at the time, but it's worth noting that in other countries, like in Europe, um, like in Britain and in Germany, it wasn't that strange for you know, unions to call for these kind of reforms. Uh, America was a, an interesting place at that time where even though we had nationalized the railroads, uh, that was suddenly seen as the influence of Bolsheviks you know, <laughs> as, as, soon as, uh, as soon as the war was over. So was there one moment when the union and the companies got at loggerheads and said, okay, this is it, we're it was kind of, It was kind of a slow burn. Um, there was uh, this period of run-up to the strike itself, which began on September 22nd, 1919. It went on for months. Uh, there was this period of increasing worry as both sides exchanged letters or telegrams, basically threatening each other with increasing uh, anger. 
the, the unions had asked for recognition and to, for the companies to come to the table and agree to their demands, and they refused. Uh, and then the federal government stepped in saying, like, hey, can we maybe help to moderate this or, or mediate? Uh, and so there's this period of a few weeks where these letters are flying back and forth, and it's becoming clear that they're not going to reach any kind of agreement. Uh, the people like Albert Gary were not interested in compromising to the extent the unions expected them to. Uh, early in the campaign, they did make some changes, uh, which Foster always identified as kind of a way to, to nip in the bud this organizing campaign. They improved some conditions and gave them overtime. Uh, but for the most part, they weren't going to agree to these demands. And so it became clear as the weeks went on a strike was coming. There was a strike vote. Uh, and I have, I believe, a photo in the book of, of the ballots they used, which were in many different languages. You know, the, the union reached out to every worker they possibly could of all different nationalities. And the response from that, according to Foster, was overwhelmingly in favor of a strike. I mean, it was, there was no question they were going to be willing to do it. Uh, so they launched it on September 22nd. And uh, they didn't come back until like early to mid-January officially. When they, when the strike started, how many people actually went on strike and how many stayed on the job? The number is in dispute because there's no like official count, but hundreds of thousands certainly. Um, the organizers said anywhere upwards of 300,000. Uh, the companies had an interest in saying a lower number and the unions had an interest in saying a higher number, so it's hard to know an exact figure. Uh, and there was certainly no you know, federal agency that was going to track it. If you look at the way the companies talked about it and the bosses and, and also the local newspapers, uh, in many areas they were saying it was really unimpressive, you know, workers were already coming back, the plants were at least half capacity, you know, they were, they were still running. Uh, but the unions you know, noted that in many areas, like towns like Johnstown especially, it was completely shut down. I mean, there were areas where production was halted for months without, without ever coming back. Uh, but it was certainly hundreds of thousands of workers. Now that number changed because it wasn't a consistent strike. Uh, a lot of them were brought back, a lot of strike breakers were brought in, mm -hmm. some workers, you know, when they just ran out of money and couldn't feed their families started to trickle back. Uh, so it wasn't a single moment that it ended or that you saw the numbers come back up. It was, it was a slow progression. Were there picket lines? There were. There were pickets and uh, it, it depended, on, again, on the town the nature of the pickets. In some areas, you know, local reporters said, oh, there's nothing, it's totally quiet. The town is just as it would, would be on a normal day. Uh, but in some towns, there were very uh, nasty battles that broke out. I mean, there were, there were pickets, uh, there were sometimes armed pickets um, facing off with armed police or deputies. Uh, so you did see deaths, you saw violence um, in some of these towns. And in some towns, it wasn't so much pickets as the workers were in control uh, of the entire area. I, I use Johnstown again as an example because they were so powerful there, but the, the workers were apparently brought in almost deputized by the local government to protect the plant. The idea was they have free reign, they might as well provide security and just kind of run things uh, alongside the local government. So it was a very different response depending on where you were. Were there repercussions against steel workers who crossed the picket line? Uh, yeah, there were battles. I mean, a lot of the violence that you saw was battles not between the authorities and workers, but between the workers and strike breakers, or, or scabs as they would have been called. Uh, you would see workers brought in, uh, including from different nationalities than you would have previously seen. Uh, a lot more African-American workers were hired and brought in. Um, in part because they had been ignored in the past and there was an opportunity to finally get sought after jobs. Uh, you'd start to see there was an attempt by the, the companies to bring in workers from Mexico at one point. So you start to see these, these changing demographics of who was working in the plants as a function of 
the need for, for replacement work. Uh, but there were battles between the workers and the strike breakers. Um, there were also people who were deputized. So in addition to, to what they would call scabs at the time, you saw regular citizens who just for one reason or another opposed the strike, opposed the unions, and you would see them coming out sometimes armed uh, on behalf of the government and clashing with these workers. It was, it was very chaotic in a lot of these towns. How widespread was it, I mean, geographically? The strike itself? Yeah. No, it was nationwide. I mean, it extended mm -hmm. from Pittsburgh to Chicago, to upstate New York, to Colorado, not always with equal levels of success, but you saw strikes everywhere. Pittsburgh was certainly the geographical concentration of it, though. The most workers striking would have been in this area. Did it succeed in some of the parts of the country where they reached it, an agreement? At no point did, they, did the workers succeed in the sense that their demands were met. Um, one of the functions of it being a nationwide strike and an industrial campaign was where in the past you might have seen uh, little strikes here and there, you know, maybe some successes and then they, they win a victory um, scattered out over a couple of years. Here in Pittsburgh or in the 1919 strike, it was a national campaign and that meant their goals were national. And when it failed, it failed nationally. Uh, I would argue it didn't fail in the long run and that it laid the groundwork for a lot of successes, but uh, it was it was defeated everywhere, in certain places faster than others, but uh, it was not a, a nationwide success. And in fact, none of the demands were met. And there were reports of the workers being blacklisted, you know, being kept out of, uh, out of jobs after the fact. So in the immediate case, it was undeniably a failure. And the organizers admitted that. Uh, was there a strike fund? I mean, could, could striking workers get money? From yes, the there was, there was a, it was interesting because it wasn't just a fund. The sheer scale of the strike and the, the effect it had in so many of these communities where everybody worked in or was related to a steel mill, uh, they had commissaries set up. And in fact, Foster, the organizer, talked a lot about the, the economics of these commissaries they had, where in a town they would set up in a, in a church or a local hall, an ethnic hall or on the street, they would have you know, food brought in, they would have sacks of, of you know, fruit and vegetables, or they would have coffee made. And the union tried to, as much as possible, have a self-functioning uh, commissary systems. They didn't have to rely on the outside. Who was Father Kaczynski? Oh, he's a fascinating figure who uh, was a, a Catholic priest in Braddock who had a mostly Slovak um, congregation and uh, was one of the relatively few clergymen who was openly in favor of the workers. There was a tendency uh, within the church or the churches in the area to, to look unkindly on the strike and on the union. They caused social dissension, and they, um, you know, they, they certainly might have interfered with the church's activities. Um, and, and you would see a lot of priests urging workers to come back to work. Uh, there was, the newspapers even print sermons you know, by local priests or preachers saying, you know, don't, don't strike. Remember what happened in the homestead? It was very bad. You don't want to repeat of that. Uh, but some of them, very notably, stood with the workers, and Kaczynski was one of them. Uh, he witnessed violence in the streets, police you know, attacking strikers and their families. Uh, he opened up the church to the strikers. And at one point he was threatened with closure of the church and he had said, uh, I will, if it's closed, I will raise a flag on the steeple that says this church closed by the steel trust. So he was very resistant. He was a, a kind of a rebel. And he's become kind of a folk figure for a lot of people since then. People remember him as, uh, as one of the rare <laughs> public figures in favor of the strike. You mentioned the, the sermons that were printed in the papers, mm -hmm. but how did the newspapers report on the strike? It was, it depends to some degree on the newspaper, but the local press uh, certainly 
had a lot of influence from the steel companies. And you can see that even if they weren't explicitly on the side of them, a lot of their information would have come from the, the steel companies, from the, the bosses. And you would see that in, in terms of the numbers of workers reported as coming back. Um, every day of the strike, they reported, you know, 10,000 more workers returned or something, you know, hundreds more back to the mills. It was always dying. The strike was always failing if you read these headlines, uh, which by the end was definitely true. But it seems like even at its height, there weren't a lot of reports of successes from the strikers. Um, and you start to see a lot more of the Red Scare kind of language creeping in as the strike goes on. A lot more of the, the talk about Bolsheviks and agitators and, you know, Reds being rounded up. Um, often in the context of, of labor trouble, so even if they would just be, say, federal agents come and arrest some radicals, there would always be mentions of, like, with ongoing labor unrest, there, you know, there might be ties. You know, it, it was a lot of the reporting was more or less sensational about the, uh, the nature of the strikers themselves and, and of the strike. Uh, but it, that's not uniform. I mean, there were certainly cases where they would report favorably on, on individual events for the strikers. But if you read it, a lot of it was pretty shocking. <laughs> and you'd see a lot of advertisements, too, from the steel companies. Um, there's the famous one that's kind of a symbol of the strike, uh, is a, a full-page advertisement taken out in the local papers with Uncle Sam calling on strikers saying, get back to work. You know, the strike has failed. It's all different languages. Uh, so they certainly had a lot of money to put into advertising, if nothing else. Was there some moment that the, that the strike collapsed, or was it just a gradual It, it was definitely eroding? gradual. Um, in some areas, it was faster than others. Um, you know, in, in towns like, like Johnstown, once the first worker started to return, observers said, you know, that was when I knew it was going to fail. Uh, once, once you see in strong areas like that, that people are just starting to give up, it, this trickle was going to turn into a, a flood soon. Uh, there, by January, it's interesting, you start to see the reports in the newspapers moving further and further into the paper and getting smaller and smaller. So what had started as front page spreads saying, you know, strike workers, battles happening, now are little notes saying, you know, a few more workers headed back, this, this plant is now at full capacity. Um, the, by January, you see executives celebrating and, and drinking and singing in one report, like a society kind of report, that they're all having a good time and forecasting a great year for the steel industry. So by then you know that it's not forefront of anybody's mind except the workers themselves. And by mid-January they had voted to return to work and it was kind of accepted as a, as a dead letter. But w was anything learned from it? I mean, did the, the workers end up benefiting at all from the strike or was it all a victory? I, I would argue a tremendous amount was learned, but it wasn't immediately known how much was learned. Uh, Foster himself wrote, and one of, one of the big sources I use uh, is a, a book that just studied the strike. It was printed shortly after the fact. And he analyzes very closely what had succeeded, what had failed, what should be replicated in the future. I mean, he was a lifelong radical, so he was going to use everything he did as an example for future organizing. And he did. He wrote more books on steel strikes later in his life. Uh, but I think one of the big lessons that came from it was that industrial organizing has a future, it could work. Uh, it hadn't been tried on such a national scale yet. It had previously been the province of sort of radical small groups like the IWW who were seen as unserious or dangerous. Uh, and suddenly you had a bunch of different unions allying together and doing a nationwide campaign. And that was something that became the norm in the 1930s when Foster was still around. And even though the 20s, the decade following the strike, were a very dark time for American labor, by and large, there was kind of this core of activists who kept that message alive, the, the industrial system, the 
everybody should be organizing across every industry for massive control for, for potentially huge strikes in the future. And that really burst out in the 30s during the Depression uh, when you saw the CIO form right here in Pittsburgh. And it was, uh, it was a trend that I think started or was in many ways sparked by 1919, even if people at the time didn't necessarily recognize it. When uh, the, the strike collapsed and the steel workers, steel companies won, did they go through a round of cracking down and showing them who's boss and punishing the workers? Yeah, and not just in steel, interestingly. I mean, there were certainly blacklists. There were people who never came back to work. Um, there was a change in the kind of people who were doing the work. But you also saw throughout the 1920s a general crackdown uh, on organized labor. There was a lot of the use of these court injunctions uh, to shut down strikes almost before they started. Uh, a lot of these, these business groups started working together in the 20s to wage legal or physical battles against organizing efforts. And so the steel strike in many ways, and, and a couple of the other strikes, like the coal strike, I think, marked a high tide for a while of organizing. And after that, it was a crackdown period. And uh, it certainly was, and even the radicals identified it that way. I think. You, you mentioned about uh, deportations. Yes. Yeah. And you, you have something in your book about the Palmer raids. Yes, yeah, there was a series of these government raids. People often think of the Red Scare in terms of the 40s and 50s and congressional hearings. But it started at this time uh, with uh, the Attorney General Mitchell Palmer, who cracked down after a wave of these kind of, uh, these fears of, of immigrant radicals. Uh, Palmer led a series of these raids against IWW members, against anarchists, against Russians, against communists, and it drove a lot of that radical movement underground for years. You wouldn't see them emerge as a, a national political force until, again, the 1930s, uh, when, when industrial organizing picked up again. Is this your first book? It is my first book, yes. What made you want to try a book? Well, I worked in, um, in newspapers for several years. I still do a little bit as a freelancer, but I, I was a reporter out in Altoona for a few years. And I loved reporting, but the thing I loved most was writing, one, about labor stuff when I got the few opportunities to, but also history, local history. I just loved local history. I loved talking to you know, older veterans or talking about some neighborhood that had long since changed. That was my favorite kind of stuff to cover. So I, I've always had this interest in telling people about the area around them. Uh, you know, did you know on your street was this meeting hall of radicals or a battle broke out? Uh, and this was an event that, that many people didn't know anything about. I also, I also have always been interested in labor. I thought, hey, if I'm going to write about local history, I might as well cover something that I love and that people don't hear much about. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Ryan Brown. He is the author of this book, Pittsburgh and the Great Steel Strike of 1919. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.